I had a wedding back in 19, would have been 1998, and the bride's oldest sister actually went to high school with me. In grades 11 and 12, we were in all five classes together. Somehow, I got into an advanced class. We took advanced science, and uh, like biology, chemistry, and physics. Never really got to use that later on in ministry. But anyway, and so the sister didn't remember me. And I said, well, don't you remember the conversations we used to have? Uh, I was a football lineman, and we talked about the fact that the linemen never get any of the glory. They don't get recognized. It's always the quarterbacks like Tom Brady or it's the running backs that score the touchdowns. And, and uh, still didn't remember me. I sent a photocopy of the page in my yearbook where she signed it. Still didn't remember me. No recognition at all. You know, there is a significant portion of our congregation that doesn't receive recognition for something that they do well. And I'm going to talk about that in just in a few moments. But I just want to ask you, do you know how the expenses or the finances of HCC operate? Like this church is totally financed by the volunteer offerings of the people who attend here. Except for one family who were members here years ago moved away, but they continue to send $1,000 a year for our debt retirement. And finally, three years ago, we had a debt when we did all the renovations on the building, so they upped that a little bit. And then we receive about $3,000 a year from people who use our building or park in the parking lot. But besides that, it's all from our congregation. So at our annual general meeting on the 22nd of this month, we'll be announcing that $246,000 was given by the members of this congregation and ended up being $4 a week more than what we needed in our budget. It always works out that way every year. And, and on top of that, $25,000 was given toward debt reduction. Another uh, $9,000 was given towards extra mission giving. And then another 9000 was given to help out with the needs of those in our church family. And in order to come up with that funding, nobody went to you and said, okay, can we see last year's tax statement? And then looked at that statement and said, you better give 10% of that or... Don't let the door hit you on the behind as you're exiting from our church. Nobody says that. We just teach what the Bible says about giving, and the people of this church respond in love and in generosity. And the truth is that nobody knows who gives what except for the treasurers. And it's not my business to make judgments on that because I don't know people's circumstances. I don't want to know what people give. So in 31 years of ministry, I've never looked into the giving books. But the downside of that is what I was getting to about the lack of recognition. We have a lot of people who give generously and they don't get any thanks for it. The people that lead in worship or people that teach, they get thanks sometimes. But those who give regularly and generously don't receive that type of recognition. Like Jesus said, Those people who give in order to get praise have already received their reward. So we know that's not you guys because you're giving, as he continues here, he says, when you give, do it in secret. Even your left hand should not know what your right hand is doing. 
Then your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So even though there's no pressure, even though there's no recognition, when you become a member of this church, you should want to give as generously as possible. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7 reads, You do everything better than anyone else. You have stronger faith. You speak better and know more. You are eager to give, and you love us better. Now you must give more generously than anyone else. So we're in a series of teaching right now entitled Count Me In, and we've been talking about some of the expectations that we have of you as members of our church. We talked about the expectation to worship weekly. Then we talked about reading God's Word regularly and even getting into community with a group of people to do that. We talked about loving people. So today the expectation is that you will want to excel in generosity. And you have to determine that amount, even though we'll talk about it a little bit today. But if you say, count me in, then generosity should be a part of that commitment. And here are some reasons why people should be enthusiastic about being generous. First of all, it's simply to obey God's command. Like Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then in 1 Corinthians 16.2, Paul wrote, That is, each Sunday, each of you must put aside part of what you have earned. If you do this, you won't have to take up a collection when I come. So the instruction there is to give regularly, that weekly offering, and it's to give proportionately. So giving shouldn't be an occasional thing in which we respond to an emergency situation, but it should be an act of worship every week. The New International Version even says that it should be in keeping with our income. So how do we determine what amount is proportionate? How does God want us to consider what is generous? Let's say this Friday night, you take a group, eight of your friends, your eight closest friends, you take them out to your favorite restaurant and you ask for your favorite waiter because you know he'll do a great job. And he does. It's a tremendous evening. And you've read the fine print in the menu which says a a gratuity of 15% will automatically be added to tables of eight or more. But then you receive your bill and there's no gratuity added on. And then you understand what's happening here. It's because of the relationship that you have with this waiter. He's letting you determine what the tip should be. And we certainly know that he's thinking of more than that 15%. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, the Jewish people were commanded in Leviticus 2730, 10% of everything you harvest is holy and belongs to me, whether it grows in your fields or on your fruit trees. So 10%, that's what the Old Testament people were assessed by God. And now we no longer live under the law, but we live under the covenant of grace. But just look at how much more we've been given. Like we've been given forgiveness uh, and eternal life in Christ. We've been given the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. We've been given guidance from God's word. And then we've been given the community of the church. We've got so much more than they did back then. So when we ask how much should we give, And God says, okay, because of the relationship that you have with me, 
Give as you've been prospered. Like, I would like to challenge you to make 10% that goal in your life. Like, if someone's only making $20,000 a year and takes home $350 a week, that's not going to be possible to do. But if we start making 60000 or more than that, it becomes easier to give 10%. And then as we have a higher and higher salary, we could actually go beyond the 10 and teach your children to give because it's so much easier for them to grow up with that generosity spirit than to have them learn it as an adult. And I love hearing to the, the stories of some of the parents in the church. You tell me some of the things that you're doing with your children to help them learn to give. It's amazing. So the concern isn't just the amount that we decide to give. It's giving regularly. And it's amazing now in this new age of technology, we've got all these different ways that people can give on a regular basis. So giving weekly, giving generously, that is all good. Second Corinthians 9, verse 7. Giving grows out of the heart. Otherwise, you've reluctantly grumbled yes because you felt you had to or because you couldn't say no. And this isn't the way God wants it. For you know that God loves a cheerful giver. So we're to give cheerfully. Now that's understandable because nobody wants a gift thrown at them. If someone comes up to you and they say, I know it's your birthday and I know you're expecting something from me. I didn't really want to spend this much, but here it is. And they kind of throw it on your lap. You you don't want a gift like that. There's nothing special about that. You'd rather have nothing at all than receive a gift that's given in that way. God doesn't want us to give because we feel obligated. He wants us to give out a, a genuine expression of love and appreciation to him and his church. Now, occasionally, someone will come up to me and they'll say, well, I, I want to give a 10% of our income, but my husband or my wife doesn't want to. And my response is, well, give it anyway. You owe it to God. No, I don't say that. I say, just talk to your husband, talk to your wife, and come to some agreement, some amount that the two of you can both give cheerfully. God takes note of the attitude as much as he does the amount. And there's another scripture we need to consider. It's in Acts 4, verse 34. And no one went in need of anything. Everyone who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles. Then they would give the money to anyone who needed it. Now, I'm so proud of the way that our congregation responds over and over again to the needs that arise. Almost 20000 extra dollars was given in this past year to needs as they came up. When a need arises, I just send out an email and $4,000 appears just like that. It's amazing. And that's exactly what took place in Bible times. So in obedience to God's command, we also see the new Christians giving submissively. Like they didn't actually give directly to the person in need. They worked through the leadership of the church. They brought that money to the apostles for distribution. Now, this isn't a direct command, but it's a New Testament precedent to entrust the leaders of the church with the distribution of the funds. 
Now, some Christians like to distribute their 10% in their own way. They'll give a little bit to the church, a little bit to a missionary that they like to support, maybe a little bit to something like Franklin Graham or Samaritan's Purse or something like that, and then maybe they send a grandchild to camp, and that's their 10%. The Old Testament talks about bringing our tithe, our 10% into God's storehouse, And that's in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, it talks about taking that and laying it at the apostles' feet. So it's an act of submission to respect the combined wisdom of God's delegated leaders. So we ought to support missionaries. We ought to send kids to camp because the Bible speaks about that. But we ought to take that 10%. That first part comes to the church and we lay it at the feet of of our leaders. We give because God commands us to give. And the Bible says, this is love for God that we obey his commands. And we also give because generosity helps to avoid greed in our own lives. Luke 12, chapter, uh, verse 15. Then he used that opportunity to speak to the crowd. And then Jesus said this, you'd better be on your guard against any type of greed For a person's life is not about having a lot of possessions. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the material mindset of the world around us. And if we're not careful, we'll place our self-worth in our house that we live in. It'll be in the clothes that we wear. It'll be in the vacations that we take or the assets that we own or the toys that we play with. But when we give generously and regularly, it's a tangible reminder that our life isn't measured by things. We're reminded that pleasures don't bring permanent happiness. We're reminded that possessions can be wiped out so quickly. Like Job said, I was naked with nothing when I came from my mother's womb, and naked with nothing I will return to the earth. So accidents can happen so quickly and things can end so abruptly. And if we put all our faith, all our trust in things, then we're going to be lost without them. Jesus said to that rich young ruler who was clinging to his possessions, he said, tonight you're going to die. And where will all these things be at that time? So every week when you give generously, you're reminding yourself and your family that our meaning isn't in these things. Our meaning is in eternal things because there's something more important than what we see here in this world. We also give generously to advance the kingdom of God. And there are certain beliefs that our church is never going to waver on. Like we believe that God is our creator. We're not here by accident. We're here by intelligent design. We believe that every person is a sinner, and because of that, we end up separated from God, and it leaves us without hope in the world. But then we also believe that Jesus was the divine Son of God, and that he came to this earth, and he came to die for our sins and to bring us back to God. So he arose from the dead to prove that he was God. And we believe that God grants us forgiveness and the promise of eternal life because we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we respond to Christ by repenting of our sins, by confessing our faith, and by being baptized into him. 
We believe that God communicated these spiritual truths to us through the Bible, and we believe that the church exists as the body of Christ on earth, and it exists to evangelize those who are lost, to edify or build up the ones that are already saved, to minister to the needy, and also to be a conscience in our community. So when you give regularly and when you give generously, you are helping to share these convictions with others. You are advancing the kingdom of God. Because in Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said, And this good news of God's kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world, a testimony to all people and all nations. Then, beloved, the end, the consummation of all things will come. So there's another reason to give generously, and that's to express love for Christ and the church. Now, you've probably read Ephesians chapter 5, 25 before, but it says that a husband should love his wife as much as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. So that's how much Jesus loved the church. He was willing to give his life for it. And if we love the church, we'll sacrifice for it too. It's just a natural expression of our love. We love our children. We love our grandchildren. And there are many times when we become maybe too extravagant with them. I love my grandson, Seth. And at Christmas, I was given permission to do hockey from my daughter. So I went out and I bought skates for Seth. I bought him a helmet with a face mask so he'd be well protected. Then he needs a net to shoot at, so I bought a net. And before you know it, you're well over $100 and you've already bought something else for him. But but that's okay because he needs those necessities. And And you don't complain about it because then you get to go and sneak your grandson away from daycare and take him out skating on a neighbor's rink. But because you love, you feel compelled to give. And that's the way it is in the church. And I know a lot of you love this church, and it's a wonderful place. And many of you have a similar story. You were looking all over the city trying to find a church that you felt at home in, For some, it was actually a three-year search. And then when you finally came here, you said, ah, this is what I've been looking for. This this is the feel that I wanted. And that's because God has blessed us with some great people and a great spirit. Paul Harvey once pointed out that marital love usually goes through three phases. He said, first, there's romance. And that's when the couple, it's really infatuated with each other and the electricity just flows and that's what I call the honeymoon stage but that stage doesn't always last forever that stage will fade and the couple discovers their partner has some faults so then a stage of tolerance starts to take over and they put up with each other and then a while later they move to a third stage and that's mature love where they overlook the faults and they sacrifice for each other and love in the third degree actually starts to kick in but the trouble is too many people actually get restless in the tolerance stage and jump the fence and try to rediscover romance with someone else. They want that exciting feeling with someone where there's electricity flowing. But in reality, they're actually delaying the ultimate fulfillment. And you know, it's easy to go through that same cycle with your church. 
at first, you know, you're kind of swept off your feet a little bit. You think this is the greatest church in the world. But then after a while, you discover, okay, there, this church isn't perfect. There are some faults here. Something gets overlooked in your life, or maybe the music isn't as moving as it was when you first came in, or, or maybe one of the leaders forgets your name, and something happens, and you begin to criticize and flirt with other churches. You want to discover that old feeling, but it's only when you stick through those tough times that you actually then get to experience the church in spite of her faults. You've got too much invested, too many wonderful experiences to not be faithful. If you love the church, you can't help but give week after week because you've got so much invested here. And one last reason to give generously is to receive God's blessing. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6. But I will say this to encourage you, your generosity. The one Who plants little, harvests little. And the one who plants plenty, harvests plenty. Now, I grew up on a farm, so I know all about that stuff. In the spring of the year, if we didn't spend a lot of time and effort putting in a good crop of grain, we weren't going to have any work to do in the fall. Actually, I should have thought of that. I could have made it easy for myself in September, October, and kind of missed here and there. But we give... Because God promised to bless those who give. And to give in order to receive certainly isn't the the only motive, and it's not the highest motive. But we are promised throughout Scripture that we will be blessed because we give. Now, that doesn't mean that God's going to pour out his physical or financial blessings upon us. But it might be spiritual. It might be in the way of health. It, it might be in the way of family. The second Corinthians 9.11 says, You will be made rich in everything so that your generosity will spill over in every direction. Through us, your generosity is at work, inspiring praise and thanksgiving to God. So God promises that he's going to multiply your seed. He's going to multiply that generosity into a great harvest, not so that you hoard it up here on earth, but so that you give to others. You will be made rich in everything so that your generosity will spill over in every direction. I just love the way that they phrase that in the voice. Now, some of you might have big investments here on the earth. It might be in property. It might be stocks. It might be shares or whatever. And that's not wrong. It's not wrong to have possessions as long as the possessions don't have us. But isn't it wiser to have more invested in heaven than we do here on earth? Because when we invest in heaven, here's what happens. First of all, we enjoy what we have here on the earth because we don't feel guilty about it. And secondly, God multiplies that investment so that it becomes an even greater return than any investment here on earth. Here's a puzzling verse of scripture from Luke 16, verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Like, what does that mean? I heard it put this way once. The guy said, one day you're going to die and you're going to stand before God and that's going to be a sobering moment because 
you face judgment and you're going to be made aware of how far you have fallen short of the ideal that God set for you. But then as you're standing there trembling before God, Jesus' voice behind you says, Father, this person belongs to me. He requested that I be his savior. His sins have been forgiven. He belongs to us. Admit him. And then after you go into heaven, you hear another voice behind you that says, you know, Father, I never met this man before, but the money that he gave to support a missionary in Africa, and that through that person I came to know Christ, but he's my friend. And then someone else will step forward and say, I never grew up in a Christian home but I came to know Christ through the youth program at a church. And it was the very same church that this man had given so generously toward that program. I'm here because of the generosity of this believer. And God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into your master's happiness. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's the friendship we're looking at there. So we know that giving isn't going to buy our way into heaven. Only Jesus could pay that price, and he did it on the cross. And now he invites us to humbly come before him and admit I have sinned. I need a Savior. I believe that Jesus died for me. Here's a promise that Paul gave in Ephesians 1.7 that we'll end with. Christ sacrificed his life's blood to set us free, which means that our sins are now forgiven. Christ did this because God was so kind to us. But that's not a blanket sacrifice that just because he died and rose from the dead that everybody's automatically saved. We need to make the decision to accept him. If you haven't made that decision, I challenge you to make it, to talk to us about it.